We can no longer mess this up. Buffcast. 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 This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Knock, knock. Who's there? Bob. Bob who? Uh, your favorite neighborhood Bobcast. Are you sure it's our favorite neighborhood Bobcast? It's my favorite. What about that other neighborhood Bobcast? Well, there's there's plenty of preferable uh, neighborhood Bobcasts uh, out there, but... I mean, up here in up here in Alaska, we've got a Bobcast on, like, every corner. I heard about that about Alaska. Yeah, it's the, the weirdest thing. Like, you know, you think we've got this Bobcast, and it's the Bobcast, and then... I come here and I just, uh, they're everywhere. No. Well, I mean, I hear that the Bobcasts out there in Alaska this time of year are lovely. Yeah, um, they're they're very white and falling from the sky <laughs> in late September. Bobcasts Apparently falling. that's strange, but yeah. is happening. Yeah, we're getting, we're getting a big snowstorm right now here in Anchorage. So this is the reason... When people here are in the summer, they're like, oh, this is so pretty. Why don't we move here? This is why they don't move here. <laughs> well, for all three listeners who have made it through this first minute of Bob banter, hey there, Bob squad. Welcome back to the one and the only neighborhood Bobcast in whatever neighborhood you are a part of. I am Caleb Castro. We are here for you. And that was Andrew Smith, who was here for you. Uh-huh. Hi, Andrew. How are that you? That didn't really work right, but no. <laughs> so we're here doing stuff with Bovink, or at least, you know, in the guise of Bov, and uh, talking about Bovy things and, and Bov theology in the tradition of Bov. So if you haven't been with us for a while, welcome back. We're currently in the middle of a discussion on the Covenant of Grace uh, in a multi-part series on Covenant theology. In previous episodes, we had been talking about the Covenant of Redemption and the Covenant of Works. We just looked at the Covenant of Grace first promised to Adam after the fall, and uh, how that played out in the primeval period with uh, Noah. And today we're going to be hitting a, a next aspect of the Covenant of Grace. Andrew? Yeah, so the next administration of the Covenant of Grace comes with Abraham. So beginning in Genesis chapter 12, this is, of course, Abram. By this point, he doesn't get Abraham as a name until later, and we'll come to that. But he is this man living in Ur of the Chaldees, so east of what is Israel, in the area perhaps to the north of Babylon, where Babylon and that empire would later be. God comes to him in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, Abram comes from the line of Shem. You might remember looking at Noah, that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. After the flood, after the covenant, 
the rainbow as the sign. There is the curse against Canaan. We talked about that last time because of the sin of Ham. So we've talked about before how there are, even before the flood, there were these two lines. It was the sons of God, the sons of Seth, those who, as a family unit, as a family line, persisted in the worship of the Lord. And then there was the city of man, the line of Cain, those that were outside. Well, a similar dynamic develops after the flood. You have Shem, and that becomes the continuation of the line of God. And then you have this line of Ham, that's the line of curse, the line of rebellion. And then Japheth, who is later promised will eventually be enlarged, will dwell in the tents of Shem, so Genesis 9.27, and let Canaan be his servant. So what you have here is kind of a looking to the bringing in of the Gentiles much, much later. But so the wine of Shem is the wine that at least most closely preserves the true worship of God. And in this comes Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Or Abram. He is not Abraham yet. Keep spoiling the end. (laughs) Plot twist. (laughs) There's plenty of people gasping right now. (gasps) Abraham? Is Abram? (laughs) (laughs) You can already pick up on multiple themes that Andrew is speaking of that's going to be playing out throughout the rest of covenant history throughout the rest of scripture um you're getting this yeah he already mentioned the two lines the lines of cain and seth the faithful and the unfaithful the children of god children of the serpent then you also have as andrew had just said again the gentiles who would eventually be grafted in as well into abraham's line from that line of shem you can go further back in how there's this recapitulated theme that you even have had of exile and scatter exile and scatter there's a traveling ever since the exile from the garden when our first parents were put out of the garden they move eastward when cain kills abel and god spares him cain moves eastward getting further and further from the garden cain had sinned cain was exiled cain moves farther away the world gets more and more wicked and is destroyed except for Noah and his sons and their families. Noah and his sons weren't faithful, and they're also going to have something of a repeat of what occurred with the garden. Just as where Adam was expelled from a garden, Noah is also expelled from a garden, where we're told of that he had begun farming and planted a vineyard. He became drunk from the wine that he had drank, and then his sons also commit sin. You get a further movement then into the establishment of Babel, which we spoke of last time, Babel, where the, the people tried to concentrate in one single area and construct a temple. They are scattered to the corners of the earth. And by the time you get to Abraham, we've moved further east, as Andrew already noted, further east in Ur of the Chaldeans. But God's going to be calling Abraham back west towards the promised land. You mean Abram. Abram of Ham. Hammy Abe. But he's of Shem. <laughs> Abram of Shem. Abraham. <laughs> Anyway, so in Genesis 12, we have this first call of Abraham where God comes and speaks to him and chooses him. Abram is chosen out of not just all the people generally, all the world generally, but even of the line of Shem particularly. Abram is the one who is chosen, who is going to carry forth this covenant blessing. 
We see already in chapter 12, although we see the covenant more formally come later in chapters 15 and 17, the promise of the covenant in the form of blessing, not just for Abram, but to the nations. So we see already that this covenant administration emerging in this first time that God speaks to Abram. Well, and even then, that language of blessing that you read for us earlier, I'll make you into a great nation, I'll bless you, I'll bless those who bless you. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We'll keep hearing that language. And this is language that we also heard to Adam, to Adam and Eve. God bless them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it and roll over it. Genesis 9, God blessed Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. So you're getting this now development, even though man has sinned continuously, the promise is not failing and God is carrying forth this blessing. So here already in in Genesis 12, you had that context. Sometimes when you read this narrative in Genesis uh, 11 and 12, you get this genealogy and then you jump right into at the beginning of Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, almost like there's no introduction to Abraham Otherwise, you know, it's just, oh, suddenly here he is. You got Abram. Well, the context is God is blessing and God is going to have uh, the families of the earth be blessed. And here you're now seeing a refining of whom he's going to be doing that through Abraham. So you're getting a refinement on one end and a extension, a bigger picture of what's going to happen with the covenant of grace. God's plan all along. So to quote from Bob Inc., this is Reformed Dogmatics, Volume 3, on page 220. Israel was taken from among the peoples. Abraham was a descendant of Shem, in whose lineage and knowledge and worship of God had been preserved most purely and for the longest period. So again, Shem being this line of God's people. The covenant with Abraham was prepared in history from the time of Adam. So going back to that Proto-Evangelion, the the first gospel, even in Genesis 3. Israel's religion was built on the broad foundation of the original religion of humankind, yet the covenant with Abraham is a new and higher revelation that again totally proceeds from God alone. In this covenant, it is he who takes the initiative, he establishes it, and chooses Abraham. Richard Belcher, in his recent book, The Fulfillment of the Promises of God, Great book. I think uh, also helps add on this. It's a fantastic book, at least in the way it's clear, easy to read, um, and it deals with other kind of more modern discussions in the covenant. Writing on Genesis 12, he notes, first of all, that the word blessing occurs five times in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. So five times already in the first three verses. And this matches the word curse, which occurs in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. God will use the blessing of Abram to counter the curse of sin prominent in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. He promises not only to bless Abram, but also to bless all those who are a blessing to him and to curse anyone who seeks to dishonor or harm him. The blessing of God will come to all the families of the earth through Abram and his descendants. God moves from the universal setting of Genesis 1 to 11 to focus on one man and his family with the purpose to bring blessing to the whole world. So that's uh, something of what I believe to be in concurrence with what you were just reading from Bob Inc. as well. God's got the initiative here, despite man's sin. Because man in his sin can't 
do anything to get out of it. He can't find his way back to God. And how many of the other religions of the world are an attempt to do exactly that, man? Feeling around in the dark, trying to gain some kind of works righteousness. This is something that Boving takes up elsewhere in his writing on the covenant. That people can somehow get their way back to God. But it's impossible. Special revelation is required. God has to, once again, condescend to man and enter into a covenant with him for man cannot get there on his own. And so it's like you said, again, this is just like in the case of the garden in Adam's original integrity. And yet, so even though this promise is going to be going forward uh, with a universal scope, uh, people from all tribes, tongues and nations being brought into the covenant, not universal as in universalism, but uh, already in Genesis 13, you start to get a refinement and a, a distinction of uh, covenant lines uh, in which God works through. You got Genesis 13 and 14 with the story of Abraham and Lot separating. And yet, despite there being, if you will, a schism in the clans or among the clan and tribe of Abram, God nevertheless still is blessing the family and clan of Abram in having Abram succeed in rescuing Lot and in basically plundering the pagan kings as Abram goes and rescues Lot. And so while Abram and Lot, his nephew, separate, Abram is starting to get worried of how is this promise that God has given him to have him be fruitful and multiply, how is this going to be fulfilled when Abram is childless? And so he, he starts praying to the Lord, what will you give me for I continue childless? The heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed, we're told, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Then the Lord goes and recounts what he has already done to this point. For Abram, he said, hey, I brought you out of Ur. You know, I am that same Lord who brought you out of Ur of the land of Chaldeans in order to give you this land to possess. And Abram wants a sign. How am I to know that I'm supposed to possess this? And the Lord says, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. So Abram brings him all these animals and he cuts the goat and the ram in half, but not the birds. But here we're having uh, the covenant already having some form of a ratification in blood. We're having a testimony of promise that the Lord will not leave him childless, but will have him possess the land. And this is done in such a way that it is God who walks through the animals. God is putting the fulfillment of this covenant on himself. In this covenant making, this walking through the animals, this was to symbolize what would happen to someone if the covenant was broken. If the covenant was broken, then the blood of the one who breaks the covenant would be spilled. God walks through the animals, and so the covenant is being made as sure as he is, but also pointing to the fact that it will be God's, as in God the Son's own blood that is poured out, to bring about the full and final fulfillment of this covenant. So already, I mean, we see even these types pointing to the new covenant, uh, the fulfillment in Christ. 
Meredith Klein, biblical theologian of the latter half of the 20th century, had a, a good phrase for this that I find helpful. You know, he speaks of this as being the uh, the self-maledictory oath. As Andrew had already said, this basically self-cursing of the stipulations by covenant that God is making his word a bond here. The rest of that passage had gone on to talk about, as Andrew was referring to, that Genesis fifteen seventeen, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. This is symbolizing the Lord passing through those cut animal pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and he repeats it. The land promise here to your offspring, I give this land. And then he speaks that the peoples of that land presently residing in Canaan would be displaced, which of course we would see fulfilled later on with the entry of national Israel, the Hebrews, entering into the promised land. After this making of the covenant in Genesis 15 and Genesis 16, we see the episode of Hagar and Ishmael. So what happens is we have Abraham and Sarah. They're getting older. They still haven't changed their names yet. (laughs) We have Abram and Sarai, who will later be known as Abraham and Sarah. They haven't yet had any children of their own. And so there remains a doubt concerning, will God actually bring the covenant to pass? And Abram and Sarah, they are... (laughs) This is hard. We're just going to leave all that in. And so Sarai has an idea to sort of, you might say, circumvent the process And that idea is that from the time previous where Abram and Sarai had spent time in Egypt, Sarai had been given a handmaiden, a servant, a female servant, Hagar. And so the idea was Abram would father a child by Hagar, and that would be the promised heir. And so this is what happens. Sarai gives Hagar to Abram. And she conceives and bears a son who is Ishmael. Now, Ishmael himself receives something of a promise. This promise given to Hagar in Genesis 16 in verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So Ishmael's going to come. Ishmael himself will be a father of many nations. But we later find that Ishmael is not the one, and this is what we see in Genesis chapter 17. And, I mean, not to put it irreverently, but in in some respects, you got to say, you know, like, well, that was uh, pretty clever of of Sarai (laughs) to come up with that. You know, considering the language in Genesis 15, when Abram said, hey, you know, I don't have any kids. Uh, How am I going to have someone to be uh, the heir of my household? The Lord said in Hebrew, your very own son, the one who will come out of your own loins (laughs) uh, will be your heir. This wasn't exactly wrong. Ishmael was still of Abraham's seed, but as Andrew did point out, he was not of the seed. So there, there is a clear spiritual line here. It is not by flesh and blood. It is not genetic. It is not of DNA that makes someone the inheritor of the promise. 
This isn't the only time we'll see this either. We see this, for instance, later with Jacob and Esau, the sons of Isaac. I mean, customarily, the oldest son would be the heir, would be the inheritor. But in fact, Jacob comes out second, but he ends up being the one to inherit the promise. Another issue, I think, with Ishmael, with Hagar and Ishmael that should be considered is that what if Ishmael had been the heir to the covenant? You could almost then, for Abram and Sarah, Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, (laughs) have a situation where they could take credit for what had happened. Like, Mm -hmm. by their cleverness, they came up with this way to have an heir. And what's going to happen is that the heir of promise is going to come in such a way to a barren woman of 90 years old. Most 90-year-olds aren't having children. But through her, she will have a son. And this is something that, you know, for which God can receive the glory because according to nature, according to natural processes, isn't going to happen. And it also kind of sets off this pattern of miraculous births that come throughout the Bible. Looking forward to, I mean, there's other examples of this. The birth of Samuel in 1 Samuel to the barren woman Hannah. Later, the birth of John the Baptist to an old and barren couple. And then finally, of course, the miraculous birth of all miraculous births, the birth of Jesus Christ to a virgin. With Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, when it's pronounced by the angel that she was barren uh, and she will conceive a son, the angel says, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. And this is the same thing that's actually going to be said in Genesis 18 regarding the birth of Isaac, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. And so it's truly by the promise of God. And so we're going to get uh, this now the specifics in this promise of God with the covenant here in Genesis 17. So in Genesis 17, we really get the contours of the nature of this covenant. It's given more detail. It is developing before our very own eyes as we read it. So we read in Genesis 17 from verse 1, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Here's where we actually get, uh, I believe, that first pronouncement of God as El Shaddai, one of his uh, many covenantal names here. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So you're getting a once more now for the third time, the direct words of the covenant given pronounced once more to Abram. The promise initially stated here. It's interesting that whereas God goes and uh, announces first that I am the Lord your God, he then gives a command here walk before me and be blameless. And this is a monumental, enormous theme that we have in covenant theology, not just in the covenant of works, but also even now in the covenant of grace, that there is a call to walk before God and be blameless. Just what exactly that means in its relation to the law and to the gospel, we'll get at a bit later. So just uh, stick that in your back pocket for now as a reference. Genesis 17 Verse 1. So Abram falls on his face, and God says to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but finally your name shall be Abraham. So now we can hey, no longer... we can say that now. That's right, we can no longer mess this up. Abraham 
Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, as the name means, Abraham. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of all your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So here we have this introduction of the covenant sign of circumcision. So here in Genesis 17, God gives Abraham this circumcision as something that is to be done for the covenant people. So you have it given to Abraham himself, a grown man. And then you also have it given to everyone in his household, adults and children alike. Now, this is something that becomes important as we start to think about covenant signs in the new covenant, particularly with baptism. Well, that's all the time that we have for this episode of Bobcast. Uh, we'll be continuing our discussion on the covenant with Abraham. We'll go ahead and take a look further with uh, how this relates also to the New Testament sacrament of baptism. But uh, we'll save that for then. Until next time, Totzins. Totzins. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.